go to the Lord one more time. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you will open the eyes of our heart, that you will feed our soul this morning. Father, we need nourishment from you. We need you to strengthen us, to speak into us, to give us the life that we need. Father, I pray that your word will not fall on deaf ears today, but your people will be sustained, that the lost will be saved. Father, I pray that you will do the same for Covenant Community Church, our sending church, that as that precious body gathers this morning, that you'll be with Pastor Tom as he brings forth your word, that he will preach mightily and boldly and clearly, that the gospel will be heralded and received and that that fellowship will be strengthened. Father, we pray for Stafford Baptist Church and North Stafford Baptist Church, sister churches who seek to save the lost, who seek to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that those brothers and sisters will be filled today with the preaching of Your Word, that Your words will be nourishment, Father, that they will be able to go forth and be lights in darkness, lights that point the way to Jesus Christ, lights that point upward to You and say, our God deserves worship. Father, we pray for Grace Church Buchanan, a PCA church plant in Buchanan, West Virginia. We pray for that new body. We praise You for hearing this past week that they have called um, a pastor to come full time. We thank You for that stability that You've given them. We thank You for answering the prayers that we have prayed for them to have a man of God who will give forth the good news of Jesus and who will week in and week out, day in and day out, feed Your people, minister to them and serve them, Father. Lord, we thank You for the outreach that they are desiring to do. We pray that You will bring fruit from that and many more will come into the kingdom of Your Son. Father, we pray for the International Mission Board, the missionary agency of the Southern Baptist Convention. Father, we thank You that we are able to contribute to that great ministry. We thank You that sister churches like us are able to give and support missionaries all around the world. We pray that You will do a work in the missionaries and through them and that Your Gospel will go to the ends of the earth. We pray for the missionaries who have gone overseas. We pray that You'll strengthen them and sustain them, Father. Lord, they have forgone all that's familiar, all that is comfortable, all that is loving and supportive with family and friends. Lord, we pray that Your grace will be sufficient for them. They will be strengthened knowing that brothers and sisters like us are praying for them day in and day out. Lord, do a work in them and among them, we pray. Lord, we pray that You'll send missionaries maybe from this fellowship to the Meshkeshian Turks of Uzbekistan. We pray that You will help them to flee from the bondage of Islam, that they'll flee from the requirements that they have to somehow achieve good standing with You. 
Father, free them from those chains. Free them from their sin and open their eyes to see the grace of Jesus Christ. Do a work among them, Father, and raise up men who will preach the gospel no matter what may come of them, no matter the persecution or the trial they may face. For you are worthy. Father, you are worthy. We pray all these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier with the Scripture reading, we are turning back to the Old Testament this morning to begin a new sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. Some of you may already know that Nehemiah tells the great story of God bringing His people back from exile from His own judgment of their disobedience and tells of the rebuilding of the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. But it's more than a story about the rebuilding of walls. It's more than a rebuilding of mortar and brick. It's about worship from the people toward God. It's about the worship of the people of God being renewed and being sustained and being able to once again gather together to worship God. And it doesn't end there. It's about the people of God being renewed in their worship and they themselves being renewed. See, in the book of Nehemiah, God is seen as forever faithful to His covenant promises. He did not forget what He had said to Abraham when He sent the Israelites into exile. He didn't forget it. This was part of His plan. He never forgot His promise. He was fulfilling His promise. And we know today He continues to be steadfast and faithful. The book of Nehemiah is named after the man, Nehemiah. But like in every other book of the Bible that bears the name of a person, Nehemiah is not the main character in the book. God is. You see, God is the main character of Nehemiah. He's the main character of the Bible. God is the reason we have the Bible. He's the subject of the Bible. He's the giver of truth in the Bible and the receiver of worship according to the Bible. And the book of Nehemiah is part of that. Nehemiah, as we'll see as we go through the book, was a great leader. He is an administrator. He delegates. He looks out for the people. He thinks ahead. He plans well. He cares about the job and its completion. But it would be wrong of us to look to Nehemiah and say, be like him. It would be wrong of us to say, wow, what a great leader he is. I want to be like him. No, you don't. You don't want to be like Nehemiah. We'll also see that Nehemiah, as great a leader as he was, had some serious flaws. In my library at home, I have several books on leadership. They talk of what a person needs to focus on in order to grow from an average leader into a really good leader. 
We can't do that to the book of Nehemiah. That's not what it's about. As much as Nehemiah is mentioned, it's not about leadership. We can't just add a Christian label to it and learn about Nehemiah's leadership style. Other times, churches will turn to the book of Nehemiah when they're starting a capital campaign, when they're wanting to raise funds, maybe wanting to build a building or add some large extension to it. That's not why the book of Nehemiah is in the Bible. The book of Nehemiah fits into the greater story of God's redemptive plan of salvation. His revelation of the Savior that's revealed a little more and a little more in each and every book. Later on, even after the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, God's people fell back into sin. They needed a Savior to come. And Nehemiah was not that Savior. Nehemiah was only a man. He was not the one who could ultimately rescue and redeem God's people. After Nehemiah died, the people lose sight of God. So someone else other than Nehemiah, one greater than his leadership, was needed. A Savior. The Messiah was promised. And we need to keep this in mind as we go through the series. The good things to point out about Nehemiah are not indicative. They're not natural within Nehemiah the man. The good things about Nehemiah is his zeal for God and his glory. This is what makes Nehemiah so great. We do say Nehemiah was a great leader, but what made him great was his passion for God, his zeal for his glory. There's nothing within Nehemiah the man for us to emulate or to work toward. It's the fact that we can call Nehemiah a man of God. As he says in his prayer here in chapter 1, verse 11, he delighted to fear God's name. If there's anything about Nehemiah to emulate, if there's anything to follow, it's to become a person who delights to fear the name of God. Being in such wonder and awe of the awesome presence of God's greatness, That's what it means to delight, to fear God's name. Nehemiah was captured. He was completely enthralled with honoring God in his glory. He was zealous for God. He wanted God honored in everything. But it's important to note he was not fanatical like what we think of today with groups like ISIS. They're a bunch of fanatics. There's plenty of other fringe groups we could point to. We call them crazy or scary lunatics. That that wasn't Nehemiah. He wasn't out of control. Nehemiah had one goal in mind. One that he was committed to. One that he worked hard for. One that he motivated the people and sought after with. That in whatever it took, however long it would be, that God would be praised for who He is. That God would be known and adored and worshipped and followed. Nehemiah was willing to fight 
for God's name to be hallowed. He was willing to leave all comfort in the, in the Persian king's presence, which seemed to be security and a good position. He saw that his fate rested in his love for God. Now, there are a lot of great leaders in history. I'm, I'm sure each of you can think of someone who's either, who either was or maybe now is what we consider to be a great leader. Libraries are packed full of books about leadership and leaders who accomplish great things. If you're a student of history, maybe great military leaders come to mind. Men like Alexander the Great. Even in his name, he's considered to be a great leader. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War II. There's a good movie that's recently come out of his leadership during the Battle of Britain. There's Martin Luther King Jr. who led the civil rights era in our country. In the church, we have Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, St. Augustine, the Puritans, J.I. Packer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and a number of other leading pastors and theologians today. At the end of it all, though, at the end of all of it, when we look to each and every one of those leaders and others maybe you're thinking of, it comes down to one thing. It has nothing to do about their accomplishments. It's not about their awesome feats. What really matters at the end of it all is how do they push forward God's agenda? How is God's great redemptive plan to save sinners and to exalt His own name, how is that accomplished in the individuals who we say are great leaders? Being able to answer that question is why we're looking at Nehemiah. At the end of this book, this man, Nehemiah, is not our hero. Jesus is our hero. So as we go through Nehemiah, we want to look for an answer. How does Nehemiah get us closer to Jesus? How does Nehemiah's accomplishments, how do they fit in with God's goal of bringing together a people for himself? Why is Nehemiah chosen to lead God's people back to worship and to submission and love for God? This is why the book of Nehemiah is in the Bible. Those questions are answered right here in our text. And this is why we're going to spend some time going through it. What's interesting about the book of Nehemiah is that in the early Greek and Latin translations, the book was actually called Second Ezra. It wasn't called the book of Nehemiah. It was called Second Ezra. That's the book that's right before Nehemiah. Many scholars believe that the same writer who wrote Ezra also wrote Nehemiah. It was the same person. Jewish tradition even had them as the same book. It combined Ezra and Nehemiah together as one book. Both books continue after First and Second Chronicles, the books before Ezra. It very well could be the same author who wrote all four books. Ezra is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, so both Ezra and Nehemiah, definitely they were contemporaries in their day. They were around the same time. And the author of Chronicles 
writes about the time of King David, the time of the Davidic covenant up to the exile. And then both Ezra and Nehemiah speak of God's people returning from exile. So if you've been tracking with me on the storyline of Nehemiah and how it fits in with the history of Israel being restored and it's pointing toward Christ, you should be asking yourself then, how does it then fit in God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ? Jesus is not mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. The need for a Savior is not specifically mentioned in this book. Now, the people's need for saving is all throughout. They were in exile, and they needed to be saved and returned. But what's the connection? In the restoring of the people and the rebuilding, God is preserving and renewing a people who will worship Him and adore Him. God's people, they had sinned. They had turned away. They had defiled His name. They have disobeyed and they chased after other things. Their hearts have been in love with idolatry. But God, in his mercy and grace, he brings them out of that misery and the condemnation, even though it was of their own making, and he saves them. And he shows not only his sovereign grace, but his awesome power in doing that. His glory is on full display in Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah says, look at how great God is. Look at what God does for his people. Look at how faithful and true and forever God is to his people and to his own name even more. God is faithful to his name and his glory. And while it really did happen in history, Nehemiah is a historical narrative The walls were rebuilt. The people were brought back to Jerusalem and to Judea. It's really a preview. It's a prelude to Christ saving God's people once and for all. It's a prelude to Christ bringing them back into right relationship with God and preserving and keeping them and renewing them in in his likeness. It points to Christ saving you, even though you have sinned, even though your life is full of disobedience and betrayal to God and his word. Christ has brought you out of the misery and the condemnation that is of your own making, and he has saved you through his son. He has delivered you and me from the domain of darkness and transferred you into his kingdom. The beloved son has done this. The beloved son has made the way of salvation. He has forgiven you and he is now keeping you and transforming you and making you anew. His grace and mercy, God's sovereign grace and his mercy are on full display in making you a believer And his power and glory are evident in the righteousness and the holy affections that are now in you and in me. God has promised in the same way he preserved and he renewed Israel that he is and he will build his church. Israel was a chosen people given a land and kept for a promise that ultimately was temporary 
because it all pointed toward Jesus Christ. What God is now doing for the church, and that includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament saints, what God is doing through Jesus Christ is forever. It's eternal. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against his will. His church is built on the foundation of the prophets, on what he did in the day of Nehemiah. Christ himself is the cornerstone of a new eternal structure. Not one made of stone and mortar in a wall, but of flesh and bone and with hearts full of love and praise to God. A people who are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Aren't you glad that God doesn't say to you, you got yourself into this mess, now get yourself out of it. No, he says, you got yourself into this mess, I will get you out of it. I will preserve you. I will renew you. Jesus is the restorer. He is the rebuilder. He is the one we follow to the promised land of glory. God chose Nehemiah to build a wall so that his people would be rebuilt. Nehemiah's view of God and his purpose was a foretaste of what the Son of God is like. Even in his name, even in Nehemiah's name, there's a window to Jesus Christ. Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. In John 14, 26, Jesus says that the Father will send a helper. Maybe your translation says comforter, who is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sent in Jesus' name. The Holy Spirit moves and acts now among us because Jesus provides the way. Jesus comforts us today by the Holy Spirit. My aim in this series is for you and I, for all of us here, to experience the Lord's comfort. That he will, we will experience spiritual renewal, both individually and corporately. That we will be preserved and renewed in holiness and in worship and obedience to God's glory. It begins by looking at Nehemiah here in Chapter 1, looking at his prayer. This prayer here in chapter 1 is a humble prayer that reveals a belief in a God who is committed to his own name and his own glory. Nehemiah's faith in God led him to pray to God and to seek his will. Nehemiah did not hear this news, this report from Jerusalem and go off on his own and try and work it out. He didn't move in his own wisdom. What did he do? He prayed. Nehemiah prayed, and that's what we are to do. Nehemiah is not an example of how to be a hero or how to be a leader or how to build something. He is an example of how to look up and ask God to save. You and I, like Nehemiah, we are to pray continually. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. We are to take all things to God in prayer. 
And so for the rest of this morning, I'm going to show us there are four things we are to take into account when we pray. Four things. Number one, our prayers are to acknowledge first and foremost God's greatness. What makes prayer a humble prayer is that it is first worshipful. It is first an act of worship. Look with me please at verse 5. Nehemiah prays to the Lord, and it's probably all caps in your translation, or at least it should be, the Lord, all caps, God of heaven. In Hebrew, the literal translation is Yahweh, the great God of heaven. Yahweh being the name of our great God. Yahweh, the great God of heaven. Look at how Nehemiah then describes Him. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is great. God is great. This reminds me of the song, How Great is Our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. All will see how great is our God. And the first verse of that song says, The splendor of a king clothed In majesty, let all the earth rejoice. How great is our God. Do you believe that? I'm not asking, do you know that? Do you believe that? Does your prayers include that? Do your prayers say that to God? God is great and He's awesome. He's also covenantal. This means He sets a covenant and keeps the promise He keeps His end of it. He binds Himself in covenant that is held by His love. It's a love that continues consistently with all those who obey Him and who love Him. And if we're honest, that's not you and me, is it? You and I don't obey Him and you and I really don't love Him on our own. We disobey and our hearts are constantly pulled by affection for love of this world. We don't deserve His love then, according to this. But God keeps His covenant. He is faithful. And this is where Jesus comes in. It's Jesus who keeps the covenant for us. It's Jesus who obeys the Father and does His will all the time, forever. Never missing the mark. Never wavering or even having an inkling of doubt. And by Jesus, God then enables us to then become the believers who obey and who love Him and who love His law. Does your prayers acknowledge God like that? Does your prayers acknowledge your dependence on Christ to receive God's love and greatness on your behalf for God to work not against you, but for you? It should. That's the only prayer that's worth praying. Next, a humble prayer waits on the Lord and is patient. How long do you think Nehemiah prayed this prayer? We have seven verses here. I read it in about a minute. I'm preaching on it for a short time. How long did did Nehemiah pray? We know that Nehemiah prayed for approximately three to five months. In verse 1, it says it happened in the month of Cheslev 
And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in the month of Nisan. So from Cheslev to Nisan, it's about three to five months. On a side note, that shows you that there's nothing extra in the Bible. There's nothing to just toss away or to ignore. Everything in the Bible is put in there for a purpose. And as we go in and we look and we study and we read and we pray, God opens our eyes to the things that are in Scripture. There's a reason why chapter 1 began in the month of Cheslev. And then there's a reason why in chapter 2 it says in the month of Nisan. It's so that we can then put together and say, Nehemiah didn't just say one simple prayer. He, he prayed steadily for, for three to five months is, is the estimate here. We don't know if this prayer was repeated over and over again or whether it was a summary of what Nehemiah prayed during that time. But we do know Nehemiah turned to God in prayer for months, seeking God and waiting on God. He was patient to hear from the Lord. Do your prayers wait on the Lord? Or is it, i got to have it now, God. Give it to me now. Our prayers, a humble prayer, needs to be patient. A humble prayer waits for God. You see, God's timing is always on time. He's always perfect. We know that Nehemiah turned to God in prayer for months, seeking Him and waiting for Him. He was patient to hear from the Lord because God is never late. He's always perfect. He's never slow. While at times it may seem that God is slow or He's not acting, it's really us being anxious and in our finite condition where we don't fully see what God sees and we don't understand the what or the why of what God's doing. So we have to be patient. Also notice that Nehemiah waits on the Lord immediately. He didn't try and figure it out on his own and then pray. What does it say in verse 4? It says, as soon as he heard the news, he did what? He began to pray. It was not a last resort. Nehemiah did not exhaust all his effort and say, well, I've done all I can, God. Now it's your turn to to finish the rest. No. Nehemiah immediately turned to God and trusted Him and waited patiently to hear from Him. And we have to do the same. Whatever circumstance or situation you face right now or whatever you may face in the future, we ought to remember who God is, that His ways are not our ways, that His time is not our time. He created time, and our lives are in His time. We need to learn to immediately turn to God, to wait on the Lord in prayer, to seek His will, and to move only when we've heard from Him. Third, Nehemiah's humble prayer is confessional. His prayer is confessional. Look with me, please, at verses 6 and 7. He said, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night 
for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Can't this be your prayer? Couldn't you have written this instead of Nehemiah? I know I could have. I know this can be my prayer. I have sinned against God. I have broken His commandments and I act corruptly. I have to confess that I sin against God and I know in reality you have too. We all have. Our prayers like Nehemiah, they need to be confessional. We need to confess our sins to God because all have sinned against God. Everyone has turned to our own way. We've broken the covenant. Not only do we confess that we're all sinners, but we confess, I am a sinner. I sin against God. That shame is mine to bear. You and I have to accept and we have to wear the fact that our sin corrupts us and insults God. Our hearts are against Him and His commands. No one in this room willingly follows God's righteous law. In our prayer, we not only acknowledge what we've done, we accept who we are. We are offenders. And in the acceptance of being a sinner who corrupts the holiness of God, we cry out for mercy. We confess sin and ask for His forgiveness, and by His grace, He does. And this happens for us, again, through Jesus Christ. He is God's salvation for sinners who have corrupted themselves and set themselves against God. It's like I was telling Kalia last night. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. And, and I asked her, do you know why He forgives us? When we go to Him and we say, God, please forgive me of my sin. I have sinned against you and you alone. Do you know why God forgives you? Because He loves you. Because He loves us and He shows us His love through Jesus. While we were yet sinners, God showed His love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Humble prayers acknowledge God and His greatness. They wait on the Lord and are patient. They confess sin and last... Humble prayers ask God to act for His namesake. This is seen in verses 8 and 9. Nehemiah says, Remember the word that you commanded. To my people who disobey and have been scattered, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. To what? What's the purpose? To make my name dwell there. It's all about God's name. It's all about His name. Every prayer that's answered is about making His name known and adored. It's about God being seen and acting for His glory. We have a God who is glorious and who deserves to be glorified. Everything we face, all our prayers, ultimately come to God's name and His purposes. What will exalt 
God's name. What will lift it up high? That is the answer to your prayer. If you're seeking an answer from God and you're praying to Him, the question is, what will exalt God the most? That's the answer to your prayer. What will be best for you as His child? Whatever proclaims His name. Nehemiah reminds us that God answers prayer according to His will. We are to pray in accordance to His will. We are to pray based on understanding His purpose and and will. That's found in His Word. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 49, the great chapter that's all about God's Word, Psalm 119, 49, it says this, Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. In which you have made me hope. Based on what, God? On the word that He's given us. The word that you hold in His hand. That contains the hope that you and I need. Our hope is found in God and what He says in His word. And God says, He will be glorified. His name is above all names, above yours and above mine. And if our hope is found in His Word, then that is why reading of His Word is so important. That's why in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people then, they recommitted themselves to the reading of His Word. And you you and I have to be in it as well. We have to know the law and understand His redemptive plan and embrace the One who is the focal point of it all, and that's Jesus Christ. God promises... His acting, His holiness, His name are all fulfilled and most glorified in Jesus Christ. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. In your prayers, Jesus is honored and He's worshipped. Do you realize that? When you have a need or when you go to God or when you're praising Him in your prayers... Jesus is the one who's being glorified and honored because it's because of Jesus that you're able to go to God in prayer. Without Jesus, you can't go to God. You're only condemned by God. But because of Jesus, you can now praise God and you can then ask of God. It may mean that in your prayers, you may have to wait for an answer then because it's not about you and I. It's about Jesus and His glory. Even if it's something God has put on your heart, even if it's something you've read in His Word, it coincides with what God says and you're praying to God and again and again for months. God, will You please strengthen? Will You please save my family member? It says in Your Word. Save my children. It says if You raise them in Your way that You will save them. He may have you wait and hope and believe and continue to trust in Him so that His Son, Jesus, is treasured and worshipped. Even if we do not see God act, it doesn't mean that God is standing still. God does so many things and acts in so many ways that we don't see. And we are to humbly seek Him, to go to Him in prayer, and wait on His Word to reveal to us what will glorify Him and what will redeem His people. This is not all that we're going to look at in chapter 1. There's more next week that we're going to look at. But today, pray to God in Jesus Christ. Humbly wait 
on him. Confess your sin and know that you are being preserved and renewed so that in his perfect timing, he will return one day. He will gather you with his people. He will bring you to his holy place where his name dwells. God is faithful and he promises to do it. Let's pray.